We're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2 and uh, from verse 9 to the end of that chapter. We started a series, Church in the City, two weeks ago, looking at the question of what it means to not only be Christians in a church, but a church that is in the heart of a major city and what God's interest is in cities. And we're unfolding it week on week. Last week, as you know, we, we really focused on some of what the Bible shows to be the dangers, actually, for Christians in the world, what Jesus describes as the thorns of life that can choke your spirituality. And um, it was evident that God was really speaking to many people that day, as many um, were, were struck by some of the things that they resonated with. But today I want us to consider more of a positive aspect of what it means to be Christians living in a city like London on, um, by God's will, actually. So let's read from 1 Peter 2. He's speaking to Christians scattered across uh, parts of Asia Minor who were um, saved, but in these churches dotted around major cities. And this is what he says to them. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. There is, um, in the Old Testament, there is a, a beautiful line in the book of Esther. Um, if you've never read about Esther, Esther was a lady, a Jewish lady who was in exile and um, in foreign empire and ended up becoming the king's wife, the emperor's wife. 
And all the way through the book, there's this, there's this building menace because the Jews are about to suffer a holocaust um, because of an evil kind of general or, or um, politician. And while God is never named in the book, you sense his divine hand at work in all that happens in the story as it unfolds and how he saves his people by his hand of what we would call providence. Uh, it's not a word that occurs in the Bible, but it just means God in his sovereignty weaving things according to his plan. And so he saves not only Esther, not only her uncle, but the entire Jewish people through the actions of that one woman and her courage when she stands before the emperor. And there's this line in the book where her uncle is challenging her to do something, to use her position and her opportunity for the good of God's people. And he says to her, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so I want you to hear that line for yourself as we start. Why are you in this city? And why are you in this church? Why has God got you here? Maybe you're visiting. I think the question applies wherever you normally live and worship. Because my prayer, not only today, but also in the course of this series, is that you'll begin to discern the invisible hand of God's providence in leading you to where you are for his purposes. Because when we sense that God is with us and that we have a purpose for his reasoning for where we are, there are huge repercussions in how you approach life and understand your place. Massive repercussions for your sense of of mission, personal mission, and belief in what God is going to do through you, and your attitude toward the city that we're in. So this is the question we're wrestling with. How do we understand our place in this city, not only as a church, because I think we have a kind of a corporate mission and identity, a reason that we exist as a church, but also for you as an individual? How do you understand your place in this city? Are you, are you, is, your, is your existence in the city separate from your church life as two completely different spheres? Or do you understand that you are a disciple of Jesus in the city for a reason and a purpose? Do you live with that sense of consciousness from the minute you wake up to the minute you put your head down at night? Now we can have different attitudes to the city we're in. On the one hand, we don't want a totally detached and negative stance towards the city. I think some Christians believe in um, a kind of withdrawal mentality where in order to protect our Christian identity, we have to build walls and, uh, and, and build them carefully around the, the whole of our lives and, and separate ourselves in isolation and withdrawal. And Christians have done that all through the centuries in different expressions, whether it's monasteries or whole communities, church communities that have literally withdrawn from society. But people also do it in more subtle ways, that you, um, that you have a kind of a guardedness all the time that you're in your life, that, there is no, that there is, you're not allowing anything from the outside to touch you or you to touch it, that there is a, a very, very thick wall between your Christian life and, and the world outside, a withdrawal mentality. But, you know, I, I, I would just ask you, why on earth would God have you on earth if that was what you were here for, if you were here to just be withdrawn? 
You know, Jesus could have just whipped us off to heaven straight the minute he saved us if he wanted us to not make any impact on the world around us. He called us to be salt and light, which means that we have to be, you know, salt has to be rubbed in to the meat in order to have any impact upon it. And that, that's the analogy he uses. So withdrawal can't be right. But the, the flip side to that is that for a lot of Christians, their lives are so, um, so uh, indiscernible, indistinguishable from the world around them that they're never going to make an impact because really you're not strong enough in your identity as a believer to make any impact in the city. And, and actually the city has a bigger impact on you. You've been formed into the image. And as we were discussing last week, the idol worship of what uh, London is in pursuit of, and particularly the idols of, of money and sex and power. And so your life can become indistinguishable from the people around you, which basically, you know, that's what Jesus described as salt losing its saltiness. He says it's, it's useless, unfortunately. He says it just needs to be thrown out. And uh, I don't want you to think, oh, okay, well, that's it for me. I just I want you to take encouragement. Okay, God wants to deal with you. He wants to, he wants to bring you rather to a point where you... You're, you're present in the city, but you're potent in it as well. And where God is going to give you a sense of purpose for why you are here. And this, I think that, this, that our mentality should be shaped by what Peter describes here um, as being captured in this phrase as that we are sojourners and exiles. I don't know if you've ever thought about yourself in those terms, it's not language that we would normally apply to ourselves, is it? Sojourners and exiles. But the idea is that basically for the Christian, that you understand that your home is somewhere else. But that God has you here. On the one hand, we know we don't belong. We have a new God. We don't worship the gods that the city worships. We have new hope. He says in chapter 1 that we've been born again to a living hope. We've got a new internal, you know, internal power for living. You've got a new sort of um, energy for living. And you have a new identity. He called us here the people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So we know we don't belong. We're definitely different from the city. And uh, that's often obvious, even just in the way Christians dress, unfortunately. We just look different, don't we, sometimes? But, but it should be true in, in more subtle and, and deeper ways about who you are as a person. We are definitely different, and we definitely don't belong. But the flip side to it is that sojourners and exiles in the Bible, all the way through the Bible, God takes his people and puts them into foreign lands for purpose. You think about Joseph. There he was, happily getting along with his life, in, in, and then taken and put into, into exile in, his, in Egypt for the purpose, actually, ultimately, of saving his whole nation and his, particularly his family. You think about Esther, similarly, taken from her, her land and then raised up to save her people. Think about Daniel, taken from his land, raised up to save his people. Ezra, Nehemiah, taken from their land, raised up to go, and, go back and rebuild it. Sojourners and exiles all through the Bible are in exile for a purpose. God has them in a foreign land for a reason to accomplish his will in that place. So when we live with this identity, I think it can begin to inform how we understand our place in a city like London. And so when we ask this question, how do we live when we're in exile? I want to give you three answers that we're called 
to be about subduing passions, planting trees, and displaying Jesus. Let's start with the first one, subduing passions. Peter said here, beloved, verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, how does being in a city like London affect your, your desire, your call to live a holy life? You wrestled with that. Many of us were wrestling with that last week if you were here. I think that there are certain temptations which actually are more prevalent when you're outside the city. Um, like the temptation not to, re- not to think of yourself as being a sojourner in exile. Whenever I'm in the countryside, I feel like I've arrived to some degree like I'm in heaven. And it's like, <laughs> there's a sense in which you can forget that the, the brutality and the ugliness of the world you're in and begin to just sort of drift into um, a more relaxed mode of life that actually can be quite dangerous to spirituality. But being outside the city has its own dangers, that being one of them. But we can't forget, can we, when we live in a city, that we are bombarded with the brokenness of the world all around us, and it affects us constantly. Um, you know, from the minute you leave your door, there are, there are evidences of the brokenness of the city. And then we feel the particular intense temptations that afflict us living in a city. Why is city life hard for your walk with Jesus, why does it affect you so much? I think part of it is just because of anonymity, that you can, you can disappear in a city, and, and, and some, some of you know what that's like, to kind of be absent without leave from the church and from your, your, your church family. You know what it's like to be absent without leave and to disappear for a while, because no one's watching. Just last week, I was... Um, I was parking, actually, I was, I'd parked my car very, very skillfully in the tightest space imaginable. And there was a scooter parked in front of me, and I was actually picking up a pastor um, who'd arrived at Waterloo Station. And as I turned to leave um, the parking space, my car bumped the scooter in front. And I had a moment of panic, thinking this thing's about to fall, but it didn't, praise God. So what did I do? I drove off, left it there, obviously. But he was parked illegally, so please don't judge me. But you know, I didn't damage it. Everything was fine. But it reminded me of, um, of when I was in America um, earlier this year and spending time with Donnie Griggs, pastor there. And he, I don't know if I already told you this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, he, was, he, was, um, he was telling me when he was parking in, in the supermarket car park that not so long back he'd, he'd nudged another car when he was parking. And Donnie drives one of these massive trucks, so you know you can't you know you can't really drive those things properly, can you? They're just insane. But um, he he nudged this car. There was no damage, and but he 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 waited by his truck until the lady returned to her car to tell her to just say I I, I knocked your car. I'm really sorry. And um, you know he's just so much more godly than me, obviously. But the re- he said he explained to me that he was trying to explain to me the dynamics of small city life that if he hadn't done that, he could have ruined his reputation overnight. He lives in a town of 10,000 people, and apparently someone had actually seen him do it. And uh, as soon as he approached the lady, this other guy came up and was like, yeah, it happened. And she went ballistic at him, but he dealt with it in the end. And it just underlined for me the difference of being in the city and outside, in, outside the city, that anonymity can, can allow you to hide in the shadows, can't it? 
There's also the impact of, of the availability of every, everything that you could desire here in London. And the, the fact that we have these potent cultural currents that lead you into all kinds of things when you're in a city like London. And we, we wrestle with this. All of us wrestle with this all of the time. How do we handle living in a city like this? And I want to tell you that there's a wrong way and I think there's a right way. Bearing in mind, we're exiles in the city, okay? What's the wrong way that we deal with the particular temptations that afflict us in city life? I think the wrong way is this, to make it a war between the city and us. Think about what temptation is, where temptations come from. Temptation is not a city thing, it's not a London thing, it's a being alive thing. Your temptations would, would, would accompany you wherever you go. It wouldn't matter if you were in London or elsewhere. You still have the passions. He says it here, the passions of the flesh. He's not blaming the world we're in. He's saying that in us, the passions that, that we wrestle with, the flesh which wages war against the soul of the spirit, that there's this warfare that is internal in our own lives. And it's not us versus a city, but it's, it's us versus us. I think this really matters in terms of our mentality when we're in a city like London because it affects our stance towards the city. If we blame the city, then we set ourselves in opposition to it or against it, and eventually we want to flee it. You get this temptation, most of you are not at this point in life yet, but you feel this when you have children. I think one of the reasons, among others, but one of the reasons why people flee the city often when they have children is because... Um, they feel that they are set in a stance against the city and that they, in order to protect their children, they have to remove them from the city. If we blame the city, we also become known for what we're against as Christians. Which can't be helpful, can it? When we have so much that we are for, that we are singing about the goodness and the grace and the love of God. And if we blame the city, then we end up trying to enforce our morality on the world. And we, we end up being a shrill voice in the ears of a city like London. And I think Christians have made this mistake repeatedly. Now, I know that this is a subtle and complex issue. What, in what way are we called to impact the world? But I think we've got to be careful to distinguish between the call to justice and the call to live holy lives in the sense that Yes, we have an interest in the way a city like London runs and we care about justice issues because that is the way we love our neighbours. But Paul says, what have we to do with judging outsiders? When it comes to matters of personal holiness, it's not our job to impose a Christian morality on the city around us, but rather to model what holiness is to the city as something attractive and powerful and satisfying. When we turn against the city we end up becoming more like the Pharisees. Feeling a sense of superiority. Judging the city. And I think what Peter rather calls us to is the right way to understand this war with sin and this war with temptation. That it is the war in your own body, in your own flesh. It is the war inside you. Because think about your, what it means to be an exile or a sojourner. 
It's not that you came from outside into London and that experience made you an exile or a sojourner in the city. What makes you an exile or a sojourner is rather what you used to be in yourself and then that God transformed in you when he made you a believer in Jesus. So the, the problem is not you versus the city. The problem is you versus you. He talks about, in, in the first chapter, the fact that we're born again, that we then have new desires. It says in, in chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So he's not saying don't be conformed to the passions of the city around you. He's saying don't be conformed to the passions that you used to obey and walk in. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And I think this is fundamental for us, friends. We're called to live holy lives, and the city needs to see us living holy lives. What does he say in in chapter 2.12? He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Holiness matters. And all of us need to be at war with the flesh to subdue the passions and live a life for Jesus. And it absolutely matters. But friends, we must be clear on this. That it's not us versus London. It's us versus us. It's us killing the flesh, bringing it into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to you? First thing then, subduing passions. But here's the second thing about what it means to be exiles in the world. And this has a lot more to do with our relationship with the city. If we're not at war with the city, what reputation should we then have? What should we be known for? Now, granted, there is a potent spiritual dynamic at work that is not always rational. And what I mean by that is that Christians, wherever they've gone through history, have always been misunderstood and often persecuted And not necessarily for rational reasons. Jesus says that in the world you'll have trouble. He says if they've persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So I get that there is this, often this animosity between the church and the world. And that that's often hard to understand or understand the reason why. Why is it that there is so much that's negative about the church when the church does so much good in our our nation? But if you ask me the question, what should we be known for? I think the answer Peter wants to give us is this, that we should be known as the best citizens, the best employees, the best neighbors in in the city like London. Look at how he speaks to these believers here. They They were exiles in in lands that were opposed to God. And they were suffering injustice. You know, you've got to get this, that these Christians that Peter's writing to were suffering in real ways and often suffering injustice. Some of that is personal injustices, like verse 12, that they speak against you as evildoers. And some of it was systemic injustice. Verse 18, he says, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So a lot of these Christians he's writing to are on a day-to-day basis facing unfairness in their day-to-day life and affliction because they're Christians. And many of you maybe have even faced that, you know, blocked promotions or, or being put on the outside of a particular social group or whatever because of your faith. But their call 
Listen carefully. Their call is never to civil disobedience, much less to violence or even to protest. When Peter writes to them, he writes to them and says, I want you to adopt this, this posture of meekness toward the world that you live in. You saw it there when he says, be subject, in verse 13, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it's the emperor, supreme, or to governors, and so on. He says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He says it again to the slaves. You know, don't be punished because you're, you're a rebellious slave. That doesn't honor God at all. Be the best slave in the household. And I find that so interesting that here's Peter and, you know, Peter and the apostles and these guys, they're not for slavery. They don't like slavery. But they don't tell the slaves, fight for your rights to party. He tells them rather, submit, subject yourself, be meek. And I, I tell you this, whenever the church has changed cities and nations, it's because they have adopted this posture. And God, in his power, begins to change hearts and minds everywhere. It's the same posture that Jesus himself adopted, he tells us. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might also follow in his steps. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, he says. But he laid his life down. He bore our sins on the cross. He poured his blood out. He, was, he allowed himself to be stripped and beaten and afflicted by people who hated him because he was showing us, partly because he was showing us, this is how I want you to live in the world. Surrender your lives to God's sovereignty. I was reading an article by a guy called Miroslav Volf. He was talking about this dynamic in 1 Peter and what he's telling us to do. And he calls, he describes it by this interesting phrase. He calls it soft difference. He says it might be appropriate to call the missionary distance that 1 Peter stresses soft difference. I don't mean weak difference. Because in 1 Peter the difference is anything but weak. He's, not saying, he's saying the Christians are not weak people in the world. He says it's strong but it's not hard. Fear for oneself and one's identity creates hardness. So when we're afraid in the world, that's when we become defensive and hardened. But he says the, op- the opposite is true when you're soft. When there's a soft difference, it presupposes fearlessness. People who are secure in themselves, who are secure in their God, are able to live this soft difference without fear. I, want you, I just want you to turn to a passage uh, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29. It's page 1151. 1151. Jeremiah 29. Because here we have a stunning example of people in exile living like this in a foreign city. This is during the exile and the Israelites are in Babylon. They've been extracted from their home city and they long for Jerusalem. You ever heard the, the, the gospel song by the rivers of Babylon as we sat down and remembered Zion? Well, it's, it's from one of the Psalms. It's written during this time when they were longing as they sat down by the rivers in a foreign city for their homeland. 
And one of the things, that the tricks that they fell into was listening to these false prophets who told them, hey, you're going to go home soon, so don't worry about it. And it caused them to disengage from life in Babylon. They didn't really care about Babylon. They didn't, then they weren't building a life there because in their minds, they were gone. I knew a pastor and his wife who were called to minister in London and were here for almost 30 years and had that mentality the entire time that they were here, the next year we're going to go back home to America. And as a result, never even decorated their flat because in their heads they were gone. Imagine how that affects you in the way you engage with the life of the city if you think, I'm leaving at some point. This is not where I belong. And then God begins to speak to them as exiles in this foreign land tells them you're going to stay here for a while, actually. And these are the instructions he gives them. Jeremiah 29, um, verse 4, we're going to read from there. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I think there is profound resonance in this passage what what Peter's trying to tell the Christians to do because really our situation is is equivalent to these Israelites in Babylon or in London three things first of all put down roots he says build houses live in them plant gardens eat their produce and so on I don't think you can love a place until you invest in it Some of you, it means very literally purchasing some square footage in the city if possible. But it doesn't only mean that. Jesus never owned a home. But none of us would question his his decision to put down roots in the world. He bled his, his life out to purchase the world for himself. There's no question that he was invested. And this is the first thing he tells us. To be on exile... Away from your homeland. Don't live as though you're always just wanting to come home. Put down roots and make the place your own. Build houses. Plant gardens. So I've called this point planting trees. I think that there's a sense in which that's what Christians are called to do in the city. We're called to say we belong here. And we're not running from the city. And we're not building walls around ourselves. We're embedding ourselves in London for good. He also tells us. To make babies. Verse 6. Some of you are thinking, what kind of church have I come to? (laughs) Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and don't decrease. Now actually, I I don't think that this is necessary. We can necessarily just dismiss the literal understanding of what God, you know, right from the very start, God, God told his people to multiply and fill the earth. Some of you just need to have some babies at some point, right? But that's, the key word in here is, is multiply. You know, when you're, when you're living with a mentality of leaving, when, you're, when your heart is departed, you don't, you don't want to multiply. That's the last thing you want to do. You get into survivor mentality. But I, I happen to believe that our church is, is called to grow. 
I happen to believe that we're called to multiply. We're not here to, as a kind of rescue outpost to pluck people out of the city and then fling them into the countryside where they're going to be safe. We're here to spread the gospel into the city of London, right? And we need to multiply here. We need to multiply this congregation to grow. We also need to multiply congregations and plant cities all across this great, so plus, plant churches, I should say, all across this great city. This is our calling, friends. I really believe that with all my heart. I think that's what Jesus left us on earth to do. I think that's why he had Christians in every city, in all the major cities across the known world, you know, by the end of that, the New Testament's written. Here's the last thing he tells us. Be a blessing. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you find your welfare. In other words, we're not here to be a pain in the neck. Rather, we're here to bless, pray for, and love the city that we're in. Because God loves London. Do you remember those words that we read from the book of Jonah? Where God in his compassion looks down and says, shouldn't I, shouldn't I have compassion on all this multitude of people? Not to mention all the animals. And he, he chides Jonah for his hard-heartedness towards the city of Nineveh. Her friends... If you are here, whether it's for a short season or a long season, and you don't love the city you're in, you can't do this. You can't do your exile well. You can't sojourn here well. I believe that God wants us to love the city passionately. And when we love the city of London, that's going to give birth to all kinds of initiatives and desires. Some of those just tiny things like ways of blessing the neighbors around you or ways of blessing your colleagues on a day-to-day basis. And some of it will give birth to much bigger things. Some of you are going to start organizations to, to impact and heal the city, to make a difference in the city. We're called to give ourselves to prayer for the city. It's one of the reasons why we're calling you to come to the upper room once a month, that we can get on our knees and intercede for the city of London, its needs and its brokenness. I think this is what it means for us to plant trees. We're not here temporarily. We're not doing kind of um, just a transient church, like a bus stop where people just join us and leave. We're putting down roots. And I'm calling you to, to do the same thing. Here's the last thing. That all of this leads to the final thing that we're Deliver Exile is about displaying Jesus. Remember that we're asking this question, how do we live out our exile well in a way that honors Christ? And here, I think, is the thread that runs through everything. All through the Bible, actually, but especially through this passage in 1 Peter 2 that we read. That it's about representing our Savior and our homeland well. Sometimes English people don't represent the English particularly well when they're in other countries. <laughs> A knowing laugh. Football fans, for example. 
Nothing makes me more ashamed of being English than watching our football fans go abroad with you know, their massive guts and football shirts, swigging beer and fighting with everyone they see. And you think, that doesn't represent who we are as a nation. We gave the world so much engineering and inventions and, and, and democracy and all these kinds of things, and all we're now doing is showing them how to, how to fight and drink beer. And apologies if, if you know, that defends something close to your heart, but it's really indefensible. English people on the beach. <laughs> Looking like pink fried lobsters. <laughs> Few things make you more ashamed to be English than seeing an English person abroad on the beach. Except for this one thing, which is English people who only eat English food when they're abroad and go to the English pubs. And because they don't want to eat any of the local rubbish, they just want to have fish and chips in the pub. And, you know, I, I hang my head in shame and pretend I'm a local at that point. But, you know, the flip side to that is that sometimes people, when they're, especially you see this in London all the time, when they're in a city like London, they represent their country well in certain regards. Even to the extent where you think, I wish I could share in their culture. You know, I see, when, when I've been to, um, sometimes you see old Italian guys, old Italian men in restaurants, and, you know, enjoying their friendship into old age and sitting and eating good food and drinking wine together. And you think, when I grow up, I'd like to be an old Italian man. That, that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds pretty good to me. Or, you know, on our estate, we've got a number of neighbors who are Nigerian, and they know how to party. And, you know, you think, I'd, I'd like to be Nigerian, at least for a day. And then there, there's the guys, you know, we've got a bunch of you in the church, South Africans, who know how to throw a barbecue, or a braai, as you call it. You know, and this part of you thinks, when you see these wonderful windows into different cultures, it makes you want something of that, doesn't it? It makes you think, oh, I wish I could, I could be involved in that. I wish I could taste that. I wish I could, that could be part of my identity. And actually... The thread that's running all through this chapter is that when the world looks at us as as Christians, they should have that same longing. I wish I was in on that. And some of it's to do with what we practice, and some of it's to do with what we preach. If there are, when you think about your life, your lifestyle, what you're showing about Jesus to the world around you, there are infinite ways to display Jesus to the city. Not only in your own family life, not only in your attitude in a day-to-day basis, not only in your work, also in your friendships, the way you socialize, everything about you preaches something about the God you believe in. Why do you do what you do, for example? Why do you go to work in the morning? If you're compelled and driven by the same motivations that everyone around you is compelled and driven by, then they assume you worship the same gods of success and money and promotion and all the rest of it. But if your motive, on the other hand, is the glory of God, then you can feel relaxed about everything else when you get overlooked or promoted, when you get no pay rise or an extraordinary pay rise, because none of that is what gives you your intrinsic sense of joy and gets you there in the morning. It's the fact that you worship Jesus and you're living a life to bring him glory. 
And Peter's just assuming, friends, when, when we live like Jesus lived, we're going to be attractive in ways to certain people. Not to everyone, but some people are going to look at us and think, I want in on that. Remember verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, so when they prejudge you and start saying, oh, Christians, or that kind of thing, he says, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, which I think means they'll, be, they'll become Christians. Eventually, they just, they've got no more arguments. Like, well, I want, I want in on that. And all of this comes from the model Jesus himself set for us. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. He's telling us, friends, Jesus poured out his life for this world. And he demonstrated what it means to live for the glory of God and surrender to the will of God. And now you go and do the same. But it's not just how we live. It's not just what we practice. It's also what we preach. Do you remember the first verses we read at the start here? Why does Jesus have us here in London? I think this, is, this goes a long way to answering that question. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A huge part of the identity of the church. You know, some of you may not be Christians, and you think, why do Christians always want more people to become Christians? And that's a valid question. It's a really important question. Why, why, why is that such a big deal to us? And I can tell you this, it's not because it makes us popular. It's not like we go to work and think, I know how I'm going to make friends. I'm going to tell everyone to follow Jesus. Because really, it's a very quick way to becoming unpopular, isn't it? That's not why we do it. So there must be some deeper motivation, mustn't there? And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it is. It's very simple. He is amazing. He is absolutely amazing. His grace and kindness, his love for us, the fact that he sees us fail on a day-to-day basis, but he just keeps ministering kindness to us, that he, that he died, that he died on the cross, that his, he actually took our punishment, you know, when he died on the cross. That was the reason he went to the cross, that we'd done wrong, and Jesus said, I'm going to take away what you deserve, and I'm going to die for you. And his compassion for the world just beats in every interaction he has with a broken person. Somebody who says, look what a mess I've made of my my life, Jesus. And they come to him with head hanging low. And whenever you read the Gospels, what does he do? He he lifts their chin up, says, you're forgiven. Now go and live a new life. And everyone in this room who follows Jesus has experienced that. So we're we're not... Telling the world about Jesus because we're trying to score points or get popular. We're telling the world about Jesus because they they need to know. They need to know what he's done. You need to know what he's done. 
This is everything, friends. We're here to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it's no more complicated than telling people he's amazing, you know. Maybe you don't have what what we're talking about. Maybe you want it. You can today, you know. You can come to know Jesus here today if you don't already. I would love for you to do that. I'd love to talk with you. It would be my honor to explain more to you if you need to know or if you just have questions. But for those of us who are Christian, why are you in this city? Because this city needs what you have. So don't make London life about what London can offer you or what London doesn't offer you. Make it about what God wants to do through you in this city.